One. On Saturday night, uh, while some of you might have been watching college basketball, I was at a uh, a Christmas Hanukkah Kwanzaa party um, hosted in my lovely neighborhood of West Harlem or Hamilton Heights. Um, a fun time was had by all. It's, it's passive voice construction. Um, but towards the end of the evening, um, while we were getting ready to leave, um, I talked to a, a couple, young couple, a lovely young couple that was from, uh, one was from, the gentleman was from Augusta, Georgia, and the, uh, the uh, wife was from Charleston, South Carolina. You know, they just moved to New York, they'd spent some time in London, you know, it was, it was a very lovely conversation. Uh, but somehow Atlanta came up, and, you know, as is custom with me, uh, oftentimes I think of Atlanta <laughs> and I think of, uh, you know, William Tecumseh Sherman and, and how, uh, you know, Atlanta was done a favor by uh, another passive voice. Man, i got to get rid of that passive voice. Um, he did Atlanta a favor by um, starting his March to the Sea all the way to Savannah, which, you know, it's almost Christmas time. It's a tie-in. He presented the city of Savannah to Abraham Lincoln as a Christmas present, and he, I believe that was 1864. Um, but anyhow, um, when I mentioned Sherman, a gentleman that I knew who was in a separate conversation heard me, and he came over and he cheers to me. He's like, oh, I'll cheers to Sherman. And, um, and then the the guy I was talking to from South Carolina, from Georgia, he said, uh, wow, I've never seen anyone cheer, cheers a terrorist. And I said, uh, well, he, he did free a lot of slaves with that march to the sea. And, and, uh, and the resp- his response was, they were already free. And, uh, you know, I guess technically in the end of 1862, the Emancipation Proclamation did free all slaves who were part of, uh, who were in territory that was under rebellion. But um, if you read any history, you know that uh, on the march, slaves started to follow William Tecumseh Sherman all the way to Savannah, eventually to South Carolina, and, and towards Appomattox um, in April, uh, eventually. Um, and so, uh, anyway, we had a little discussion about whether the slaves were actually free before William Tecumseh Sherman gave Atlanta the beating they so richly deserved. Um, and then my and my lovely wife indicated it might be time to leave, so we headed out. But on the positive note, uh, immediately after, the wife from Charleston, South Carolina, did um, uh, add me on LinkedIn. Um, in other news, the SEC is really underachieving this year, and no one's really talking about it. Double bonus the rest of the way. Double two bonus as well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 8, the Ocho of the Double Bonus Podcast, along with Brendan DeRocher and Tom Borstein. Come for the basketball, stay for the history lesson. We'll save my Robert E. Lee rant for when a time when Virginia might be more in the news than they are this week. But I'm safe to say I don't think I would have been well-liked by your new friends at the uh, hashtag Sherman is a terrorist group at your party. Um, yeah, and the SEC. That's a good tie-in. But yeah, we'll save the Robert E. Lee stance, that traitor, for another episode. Brendan, how are you doing? Uh, I'm pretty well. I, it's a weird time for me. In about uh, 28 hours, I'm going to be on a plane and ready to fly off to uh, to Asia for a long vacation. Heard of it? Yeah, it's a very large landmass. Uh, yeah, there are well, at least you know, 20 million people on the continent, right? I think. 
Yeah, I think one of the uh, what was it, Princess Bride? One of the rules was like never start a land war in Asia. That's um, you don't want to start a land war in Asia. It's a very large land mass. Um, but uh, and between now and then, you know, work is very busy trying to get a lot of things accomplished and tied tied out before uh, before I leave. Um, and of course, also. Uh, Providence had a very uh, a great victory, their first victory since 2004 at Boston College last Tuesday while we were recording, and then on Friday they blew a 20-point lead, including 18 points at halftime, to lose to UMass by one at home, and, uh, and then earlier today it was announced that uh, their top freshman, maybe the top freshman so far this season in the Big East, uh, A.J. Reeves, has a, has a broken, I think, broken foot, and he's out four to six weeks. So, you know, I've been uh, staying steering clear of college basketball for a few days now and I'm, I'm leaning on Tom here and his expertise to bring us bring us through the last couple of days I'm sure I'll have some opinions nonetheless um, but, uh, but that's how I'm doing how are you doing Tom I'm doing good been traveling too busy uh, busy few uh, days I'm in a stretch of seven flights <clears throat> seven different airports in six days so oh. Yeah, I'm in an undisclosed location right now, but it's it's good. It's good. Kansas is still undefeated, though they've looked a little shaky. I think we'll talk about that later. But you, will, I expect no sympathy from you. Providence had a rough uh, rough morning today, and also a rough uh, few days. So I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's okay. I mean, one thing that happened in the Providence Boston College game last uh, last Tuesday was that uh, AJ Reeves, aforementioned freshman out of Boston, playing. Literally, he went to, to high school in, in Chestnut Hill, which is where Boston College is located. Um, and the Friars uh, were down by three points at the end of regulation. A.J. Reeves hit a three-pointer to tie the game, and, the, and Providence won in overtime. It was a deep three, maybe maybe even a 20, like a 25-footer. Reeves is one of the best uh, freshman shooters in the country. Um, so there was a lot of talk, of course, whenever something like that happens, about whether Boston College should have fouled, whether they should have played it out, which they did what the pros and cons are of each with the, the um, supposedly smart evolved fans thinking you always foul because two is less than three. Um, but I don't know, Tom, what do you think about fouling up three? I really think that anyone who has a strong opinion and says he's definitely right is probably wrong in saying that. There may be a correct answer to this question, but I don't think it's um, really something that you can say for sure. I think a lot of times in any game-ending situation or like high leverage situation, People, whether it be basketball going for two, whether it be pinch hitting, sorry, fouling up three, whether it be football going for two, whether it be pinch hitting or bunting. Well, bunting is probably wrong, but <clears throat> in frog baseball, like a, yeah, frog is wrong. Uh, <laughs> number one Seinfeld reference. Um, no, but whenever someone says with the exact certainty, like that was a really bad move, you have to think about, we're talking about like percentage points and win probability. So like going for two may be the right call in a football game. But I may swing it by 2% win probability. It's not swinging like 30%. And the same thing with fouling up three. There's no way fouling up three is that decision is as, has as much value and win probability as the amount of energy people expend talking over it. Personally, I would foul up three late in the game, like within like within like three or four seconds. But I'm not so confident in that that I would rip a coach for not fouling up three. Yeah, fouling up three brings uh, brings into the picture what uh, Ken Pomeroy. Uh, first compound reference of the podcast as well calls the insta loss, uh, which um, whereas if you foul if you don't foul up three, you re- generally the worst thing that can happen is um, you go to overtime where you theoretically have about a fifty percent chance of winning. Um, you know, there's situations we've seen where referees misinterpret uh, intention and call an intentional foul. 
Um, we saw there was a game between, I think, Charlotte and Richmond in the A-10 tournament. Uh, actually, there's been a couple of games with Charlotte where there were some things that have gone awry. But, um, where, like, there was a foul called that was called, like, intentional maybe, and then the referee and the... the um, the coach for, I think, Richmond at the time, it might have been Chris Mooney. I'm getting, there's some facts that are not right here. Ch- check my facts. Well, Chris Mooney was probably coach of Richmond. It's been a while since yeah. he hasn't been, so I'll give you that um, one. That's for sure. Yeah, so he, uh, <laughs> he like, went ballistic on the sideline, and it led to, like, multiple fouls. So I think I think Charlotte went up from being down, like, three to winning by, like, five in, like, a matter of seconds. Early this, this year, Charlotte was playing Oklahoma State, and something similar happened where Oklahoma State tried to foul intentionally up three, but they called it intentional foul, like a flagrant foul. Oklahoma State made the free throws. Sorry, Charlotte made the free throws, and then on the inbounds, they made a three-pointer to win the game. What were you going to say, Tom? Oh, I just found the game. It was uh, to 2013 A-10 tournament. Charlotte stuns Richmond 68-63. Uh, Pierre Henry, no relation to Thierry, Hit eight free throws in the final five seconds of a wild start to the Atlantic 10 tournament. The Spart- Spiders led 63-60 with 4.7 seconds left. Were called for three technical fouls. Yes. <laughs> it all started. It all started when Richmond chose to foul Charlotte to prevent the 49ers from sending a three-pointer. After Henry made the front end of one-on-one, the Spiders Derek Williams, and this so basically they fouled following up on the rebound, and there was a shoving match, and then blah blah blah. And then Chris Mooney was called for two technicals and ejected. So he was <laughs> thrilled. And then it says here, Chris Mooney, uh, Mooney paced outside the locker room for several minutes after being let off the court, muttering, how can they decide the game? Dot, dot, dot. So, yeah. I va- now, now that you mention this, I vaguely reprim- um I think we were in the office together watching this game yeah. <laughs> on like a I Thursday like, afternoon. Kudos to the San Diego Union Tribune uh, SEO because I Googled Charlotte Richmond A10 tournament, and this is the first article that came up an AP recap on their site. Now they have a bunch of pop-up ads, but anyway, good for them. I got their article, and think it's money's worth. What are the odds I'm the only person to read that article this week, Brendan? On their site? I think that there will be one other person to read it. Honestly, okay, maybe it'll okay. be one of us uh, listeners. But if you want to yeah. learn more about um, this, uh, kind of the history or like the data behind fouling up three or not fouling up three, there's an article on the Ken Palm site. KenPalm.com slash blog slash yet hyphen another hyphen study hyphen about hyphen fouling hyphen win hyphen up hyphen number three slash. Um, it's, it's from 2011. I want him to update it. It might be from 2013, actually. I've asked him to update it on Twitter. So far, he has rebu- I've been rebuffed. With extreme um, prejudice. Yeah. But there was a game Thursday night. You and I were together. Um, happy birthday, Tom. Thank it, you. Yeah, it was a, a co-birthday celebration between Tom and a, and, a, and a fellow friend of ours. And Maryland was playing Purdue. We were watching um, – I was watching the end of the game with this rando at the bar who was wearing a Baltimore Orioles hat, which is, I got to say, that's major props after, what, like, a, what an 18-win season they had this year under Buck Showalter. Um, but he was a big Maryland fan. He was living and dying with every moment. They were playing at Purdue, and Maryland was, up, was down three. Purdue fouled. Maryland made the first free throw. Missed the second, and the rebound went off of Purdue out of bounds. That's one point that Ken Pomeroy brings up in this um, in his podcast in the blog that I mentioned with all the hyphens. Um, he says that um, rebounding percentages for the the offense go way up in situations where you must get the rebound, and we saw it there where his dead ball rebound off of I think it was Matt Harms from Purdue. Um, Maryland inbounded the ball. Suddenly they're down two with like three seconds to go and a chance to win it. Now they didn't. They had a three pointer that was blocked. So it was ultimately successful. But at the same time, you can see how those situations, like, I mean, literally, one made shot there and you would have lost. Um, 
and people people say well, th- two is less than three, but the, even three means you tie. That's like and you go into overtime, whereas two could actually be four or five. So anyway, uh, this article has three on appendices that. on it, by the way, just three of them. Yeah, yeah. he has three append- appendices on the uh, his thing. His article, I think this is where I got my conclusion. He says that it's difficult. It's difficult to determine the proper strategy. The only conclusion one can make is that the... A lot of passive voice here, by the way. Even from patrons saying Ken Palm. To me, the only conclusion one can make is that the criticism of coaches that chose to defend appears to be misplaced. A small percentage of the time you'll get burned no matter what you choose to do. We will continue to see teams making game time threes near the end of games. More often they get fouled simply because more coaches choose a strategy. In the long run, it's difficult to prove it's a bad idea. So if Ken Palm can't prove it, then you should definitely back off, pump the brakes a little on this, uh, this, um, this idea that you got to foul and you got to end criticizing everybody. Sometimes people make a shot; it happens. Uh, yeah. What, what, well, the coda. I'm not sure it's really a coda, but just the one kind of to button it up a little bit. Bob Walsh, who's um, we want it, we want to be a friend of the podcast. One day he'll be a friend of the podcast. Former Maine coach, uh, former Providence College assistant former Rhode Island college coach, and I think he went to the Final Four there in Division Three. Very kind of um, interesting thinker about college basketball. I feel like he'd be really good. Like if they had a role for an assistant coach where he's like the um, offensive-defensive coordinator type person, the person to kind of like manage the game while the while the head coach like kind of motivates his team and, and recruits, I think Bob Walsh would be great in that role. Anyway, he has a blog where he talks about a lot of things, and one of them is about – any tweets about this too about three fouling up three you have to practice it and that's the thing like if you don't practice it people will make bad decisions if you aren't clear if you're not communicating with the referees um you know a lot of bad things can happen and so if you kind of decide on a whim okay we're, we're up three with eight seconds left let's foul you know a lot of bad things could happen so anyway um also tuesday night last tuesday night um miami lost a second consecutive game to an Ivy League team, Penn this yeah. time. That's four straight losses to um, teams from the Northeast Corridor, Seton Hall, then Rutgers, then Yale, then Penn. Each one arguably worse than the, the next, although uh, Yale's probably better than Rutgers. Um, any thoughts on uh, your uh, alma mater conference uh, knocking off Jim Laranaga's club twice in the matter of a, a couple days? Well, Miami's in a tailspin, obviously, and that's like a little concerning for them and Jim Laranaga. Um, I think it's good. I mean, Penn and Yale are both going to be in the top half of the Ivy League. It's not like they lost to, say, Columbia. Um, right now, as we're recording, Penn was leading Villanova at the plus at the half. So kudos to them for that. I guess we'll, we might find out the score by the end of the game. Uh, by the end it's of like the, that's show. a third straight uh, Big Five game that. Villanova was losing at the half, and they were losing. I think they were losing at the half, or in the second half at some point against LaSalle and Temple. The last, uh, the last two games. Yeah, they came back against LaSalle. Uh, that was a pretty weird, uh, weird game. Uh, so yeah, it's good for Yale. I think Yale is really good in the Ivy League. It's going to come down to Yale and Penn. It's nice that the Ivy League has gotten a little more breath in their um, champions the last few years, because for such a long time, when I was in school, it would be Penn or Princeton every year. But now we've had several teams represent the Ivy League in the tournament. Not. Um, but not Columbia. But uh, yeah, don't. It's pretty. It's got to be pretty rare for a team to lose two two games to an, a major conference team to lose to two Ivy League schools in the same season. So my question for you now, Tom, is who wants to have some fun? All right, I'm gonna do it. I thought about it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna play 20 questions with you, Brendan. Okay. So I've looked it up. I believe you this had, is the correct answer. How'd you I find it? Gone, 
I went through Ken Palm and went year by year, starting with this year and going backwards to the last time a, a major conference team lost two games to Ivy League teams in the same year. So this is not consecutive. This is the last time they lost two games. And, um, and it has happened in the Ken Palm era. So the question is, when was the last time it happened? You have 20 questions. I want the year and the team. And, and basically, each when you guess, it's like a year and a team. And that's a guess. So yes or no questions only, go. Is the team from the Pac-12? No. 19 questions. <laughs> Is the team uh, from the SEC? No. Eight, 18 questions. This is great radio. I mean, are, are, you, are you guessing along? Are you guys... Are no, you, you're not you entertained. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is the team... And see, I got unlucky here. Is the team in the ACC? Yes. Awesome. So the team questions. is... Clarifying question. The team is in the ACC. Yes. Nice. <laughs> So basically, they're very good odds. I can just start. I have to get the year though, too. Yeah. Um, hmm. So who would regularly play an Ivy League team? Boston College probably would, and they've sucked. So let's take a look. Let's take a let's take again. I'm just looking at this year's list just to so remember. Is the team Boston College in 2013? What you, what you could do, what you can do is you can say is it Boston College and eliminate the rest of the and then go then go by yeah, year. Sure. But is it is a team? Yeah, is a team Boston College. Yeah, I do want to do that. Thank you for helping me out. It's surprise. It's surprisingly not Boston College. Um, Boston wow. College lost loses to Harvard pretty much every year, but they don't. <laughs> it's, it turns out play many other uh, Ivy League teams, and I guess when they do, they win. So that's you have uh, sixteen guesses left. Is it Pittsburgh? No, fifteen. Wow. <sighs> Syracuse plays Cornell. Would they play someone else? Probably not. And they've been pretty good. Uh, is it Georgia Tech? No, Thursday. Yeah, they stink. They would never play. They play. Don't even play any Ivy League school. I'm really now Carolina. Is it Virginia Tech? No, twelve guesses. Eleven. <laughs> is it Syracuse? No. 11. Is it Syracuse? You wow. guess Syracuse ACC again? Team, huh? Yeah. No, it's no, no. Syracuse. It was only once. Okay. Not Syracuse. So what you're saying is it's not Syracuse. It's uh, not Syracuse. Is it... I've lost track of what I've guessed here. Is it... Col... No, it can't be them. Is it North Carolina State? No. Ten left. <laughs> uh... so listeners, I thought it would be because you're only... At, you're asking like the smartest questions, but you're like it's not... Like, it's just like... A yeah, list it's of pretty boring radio. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what do you have a better strategy for how I should have attacked this problem? <laughs> no, it's just I thought you'd been like... How what what who is the coach still the same coach as he used to be or like when the year he no, did it like or why like, uh give me why don't you give me why don't you give me some cryptic hints or something? Okay, yeah. so well, here's I a, don't have that committed to memory, so here's a hint. Yeah. This team won the ACC tournament um and won a game in the NCAA tournament. Wow. In the year it happened. Yeah. ACC tournament. Has it happened in the last ten years? Yes. Has it happened in the last five years? No. So okay. This team has a coach that we've definitely talked to, uh, talked about on this podcast. They have a team that we talked about on this podcast recently. Wow. They won, and they won a game in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. 
They were like a three seed in the NCAA tournament. Um. So they won the and they won the so we've we've they won the ACC tournament that year. Yeah, they won the That's ACC a, tournament the year that they lost to two ACC teams. And it hasn't I mean, happened in the last five the years. Is it Miami? It's not Miami. That's crazy. They did win the ACC tournament, right, in 2013? Yeah, yeah. They, did, uh, they won it one of those years. Is it Florida State? I think it was the year when they had Shane Larkin. It is Florida State. Uh, so they won what it in year 20... Florida State is it? I think they won it in 2011 or 2012. Let's say 2012. Okay. That's correct. It's the 2011-2012 Florida State Seminoles. On Friday, November 25th, they lost to Harvard in what was surely a compelling game, 46-41 to on a neutral court. Um, That was in the middle of a tournament in Nassau, Bahamas. Um, And then they lost on December 30th at home in three overtimes to Princeton, 75-73. So here's your question. Uh, Which is a worse game? 46-41 regulation or 75-73 in three overtimes? It's got to be the 75. It's got to be the 46-1. Yeah, 46-41 is a bad game. Uh, neutral yeah. court, too, because then there's like there's no fan interest on, in the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thanks for helping us waste our time doing that, uh, yeah, listeners. That awesome. And thanks for getting through that. Um, yeah. What else you got? Uh, what else you want to hit on? You want to talk quickly which game was worse? You want to play another game and which game was worse? The... TCU, sure. uh, sorry, VCU Texas game, 54-53, or the mm. Florida West Virginia game at the Garden on Tuesday, which Florida Oof. won. Woof. I think I, I think I saw some someone on Twitter say that some like draft, I think it was a, a draft guy, I forget his name, but um, that this was the had to be the worst game uh, to watch as a fan that he'd ever seen in Madison Square Garden, the West Virginia Florida game. But I will say this, Texas had the lowest opponent's field goal percentage in a loss in almost five years. So, sorry, more than five years. Texas allowed an opponent's effective field goal percentage of 33.1. Effective field percentage basically is one and a, you get one and a half makes per three, and then one make per two, and you divide it by your total amount. Usually the national average is about 50. And West Virginia beat them that year with a 33.1% one. I actually watched the last few minutes of this game. West Virginia hit like a... Um, a few threes towards the end to win it. Um, that was actually Rick Barnes's only non-NCAA tournament season at Texas. In, this is the 2012-2013 season. And uh, that was the last time Texas lost a game when they had played such good field goal defense. Um, and this was the lowest effective field percentage in a win by VCU in the Ken Palm era. The lowest had been 33.6, which they did in a 52-48 win over Drexel in 2011. So I'm gonna go with that game just because I feel like I've, I, I researched that on Wednesday, on Thursday morning. I spent some time on this. Game. Well, I can so check I your look. work. I have. A, you could have just asked me the question. I could have looked this up for you. I get a much better. Uh, um, what was yeah. the question? To the highest, like the lowest field goal percentage. I can find it. I can, I can get that information. I have a little backdoor. Lowest situation. effective field percentage in, in a in a in a win. You know. Yeah, I can get that team. So the. Okay. The the by the um the lowest by the opponent right in a win. Yeah. That's what you're asking? Hmm. The, the lowest by a team that won a game. Preferably like a, in a, a, two teams that we've heard of and not like two randos. Hold on. There are a lot of negatives <laughs> in this question. Yeah. Um, it's the lowest by the opponent. And... Oh, it's got... 
Well, I'm so confused now. It's the lowest by an opponent. Oh, hold on. This is this filter's messed up. We'll come come back to me on this one. Anyway, that game stunk. I watched part of the Florida West Virginia game. That was also terrible. There were a lot of fouls in that game. West Virginia is not fun to watch. And then I thought it was Florida's fault. And then Florida played a really clean game as far as fouls go. They didn't look particularly good. They didn't look terrible against Michigan State on Saturday. So it wasn't Florida's fault. It's just it's just West Virginia continuing its assault on watching unwatchable college basketball. Yeah, meanwhile, Gonzaga uh, squeaked by Washington at home on a, on a two-pointer, on a little jumper from Rui Hachimura um, on, I think that was Wednesday. And then later in the week, they suffered their first loss against uh, Tennessee. Um, the Vols are, proving, are making their case as a top team. Do uh, you have any thoughts on uh, Admiral Schofield and the uh, one-loss Vols who knocked off undefeated Gonzaga on, I believe that was Sunday? Yeah, I mean, this is a very good team. Uh, Gary Parrish talked about in his podcast how this Tennessee team is not didn't have like any big names coming to school, and Rick Barnes has developed them really well. Schofield was the man in this game, had two big threes down the stretch. Grant Williams fouled out again. He also fouled out in Tennessee's game against Kansas. Um, so that's obviously something that they would rather he not do. Uh, but Gonzaga had a close one earlier in the week against Washington and barely squeaked it out, and I think it's kind of caught up to them. They played a pretty tough schedule. And they got jumped by Tennessee here. And then they're going to play North Carolina in a true road game on Saturday, one of the few good games coming up this week. Um, so Tennessee is for real. I mean, you, I know, Brendan, you talked about the SEC underachieving. Um, Tennessee and Auburn haven't. Uh, Kentucky is a disaster right now by their standards. Um, so Tennessee really is looking pretty good. They played a pretty good schedule. And they have some nice wins. They beat Marquette also in Brooklyn. Um, they beat Louisville. And they have beaten Gonzaga now. So, and they lost to Kansas in a very close game in overtime. So full credit to um, them uh, for this win. And I don't really – I think Gonzaga obviously is going to – they have a few tests left. Basically, it's this, North Carolina, and then San Francisco in their conference game in St. Mary's obviously is uh, tough too. And they have a couple of trips, I guess, to – they have a trip to BYU and San Diego. But their, their toughest games are going to be in the stretch here. They also play Creighton. I forgot about that game too. So this is probably their toughest four-game stretch of the season. Creighton at – at uh, Creighton, Washington at home, uh, Tennessee on a neutral, and North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So that's a pretty tough four-game stretch. By the way, that's um, one that's one game removed from also playing Arizona and Duke back-to-back days on a neutral and beating both of them. So they have had a really – it's a tough stretch of their schedule. It's not surprising to see them lose a game like this. Yeah, one one small correction is that Tennessee knocked off Louisville and not Marquette in – Oh, right, correct, correct. Uh, in yeah. New York. Um, I mean, either game is a pretty impressive victory considering how Louisville's played since. You mentioned Kentucky losing to Seton Hall in what was a crazy game um, with uh, a game-tying shot at the end of regulation from literally half court, um, which was, I think that was what, Keldon Johnson? Do I have that right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Keldon Johnson hit that. But then Miles Kale, the other Miles, not Miles Powell, but Miles Kale uh, hit the game-winning three at the end of the end of overtime for Seton Hall. Um, yeah, and Kentucky is down to 17th in Ken Palm's rankings. Um, although they were, I guess they were 17th entering the Seton Hall game anyway. They have uh, Utah at home, and then they are neutral against North Carolina December 22nd, and they play at Louisville on the 29th before conference play, where they have, of course, the 18 conference games, plus they host Kansas on January 26th. Um, in that game against Seton Hall, uh, I mean, I was, it was a great game back and forth. Um I'm looking at the statistics, and I and I see, um, you know, Seton Hall hit a lot of threes. Uh, 
11 of 26 threes, whereas Kentucky hit 5 of 20. seems like we're in another year where Kentucky is not um, able to make things happen at three-point line. Only 28.6% of their three-point of their attempts from the field are three-pointers. That's 339th in the nation. And of their point distribution, they're 343rd in the nation. Less than 20% of their points come on three-pointers. So it's, it's more things change for Kentucky, the more they're the same. They're still not a, um, a great shooting team from the outside, despite being a great rebounding team, getting to the line a lot. And, the, and on the other hand, their defense, they've had maybe partly it might be bad luck. They've had a very difficult time defending the three-pointer this year. They're 334th in the nation at 40%. Maybe that'll regress a little bit. Um, but they're also not turning people over. Um, I mean, we'll see. I, I think that I still think Kentucky is a top ten team by the end of the year, uh, but they certainly haven't played like a top ten team yet, and they don't have a top ten resume. Their best win, according to Kempom, is a home win against UNC Greensboro, and if not that, it's a home win against Southern Illinois. So they don't have anything on their resume um, that would point to like a top four seed in the NCAA tournament. So it might be an uphill climb for them to get to that spot. Yeah, I mean, they have basically played twice outside. In fact, no, they have played twice outside of. Rupp Arena, they've lost both games, once in um, Chicago and once in the Garden. And they have another tough schedule coming up. They got Utah at home, which they should win. Then they have North Carolina at the CBS Sports Classic, and I think it's in New Orleans, or sorry, Chicago. Um, they have that game. Then they're at Louisville in a classic rivalry game, and they're at Alabama to start conference play. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the problem with... Um, uh, Kentucky is like they're letting their. You talked about their luck with their threes. They're but they're still probably allowing a lot of attempts per game. Almost a thir, almost uh, more than a third of their opponents' points comes from the three, which is 33rd in the country, 33rd highest percentage. So they're letting their teams, they're letting their opponents shoot the three. So I guess the question is, how good are, should they be trying to discourage the three more in their defense rather than just kind of like play the three-point lottery? Yeah. Uh, run people off the line a little bit and yeah. force them into their big uh, defenders who can have shown that they can block shots. I mean, um, PJ Washington, EJ Montgomery, and Reed Travis are all um, decent shot blockers. Even Tyler Harrow is blocking shots for them. But um, anyway, let's wrap up the week. I want to talk about your favorite team and my alma mater. Um, so we can wrap up, unless you have anything else you want to talk about after that. Northwestern played Michigan really tough last Tuesday that it seems like a long time ago now uh the toughest that anyone's played Michigan this year losing by two Northwestern had a three-point attempt although not a good three-point attempt at the buzzer to attempt to win the game um it was missed by Ryan Taylor of uh of the Wildcats I'm pretty sure it was Ryan Taylor yeah he's he's a transfer from Evansville who's a one of their kind of complimentary players behind uh Vic Law and Derek Pardon um Ignace Bradzikis is I, it's not really sneaky anymore, but considering where he was ranked, um, just a terrific freshman. He's old for a freshman, and he plays even older. He had 23 points, four rebounds, two assists, and two steals. Northwestern has now lost its first two league games by two points each, including one of those to Indiana, which won its first two league games by um, by two points each. And so it's a, little t- it's a tough uphill climb for Northwestern, losing those two very close games. They followed up on Saturday by trailing much of the game, as much as 10, I think, in the second half to DePaul. They went, went on a 25 nothing run, um, you know, because DePaul just, you know, they can't they, they can't uh, let um, well enough alone, and they can't have nice things, I guess is what people say. Um, and Northwestern did beat DePaul and, and avoided that bad loss. Um, any thoughts on Northwestern before we head to uh, Lawrence, Kansas? 
Uh, I think that they had obviously a tough start to their schedule. It would have been nice if they, because they rallied to take this lead against Michigan late in the game. It would have been nice if they held on and stole that game at home. Uh, obviously, there's no shame in losing at Indiana or at home to Michigan, but as a team that has its sights set on the tournament, as you said, Brandon, they really got to they gotta pick some of these games off at some point. So I think it'll get easier for them as time goes on, but um, it's, it's a pretty tough start to the schedule, but it wasn't. I watched the end of this game. Brendan, I had a very Brendan evening on Tuesday. I put on the Florida game, said this is terrible, and then I uh, watched the end of the... That was after the Providence game, and I also watched the end of this uh, Michigan-Northwestern game. So two very exciting games for your teams on Tuesday. Um, but it wasn't only one went with your outcome. But we'll see. Northwestern is going to be a team that's going to need to bag some scalps, as they say. Well, actually, the parish shouldn't say that. Get some big bag ones. Bag some scalps, yeah. Let's just say yeah. that, yeah. It's yeah. good, you know. Tippy yeah. Canoe and Tyler, too, Tom. Yeah, anyway. Uh, another history reference. You know. uh, what, do you got, what do you got on uh, Kansas, New Mexico, Tom? New Mexico, by the way, they, they were getting destroyed by teams. And what, Kansas barely beat them? Is that, is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. Kansas was down big in the second half. They were up 12-2 in this game. So I was watching. I was on a flight. UConn was playing at the same time. And that game went long. I was like, well, can we just like selectively turn this game back to... Uh, Kansas, please, it would be much nicer. Anyway, they were up big in the second half. The first half twice, then blew those leads. And then they trailed um, 51-44 with 11 minutes to go in the second half. They started to slowly um, chip away. And then Diedrich Lawson scored the last 14 points of the game for Kansas, and they won. And Diedrich Lawson has to be their best player now that Azubuke is out. Udoke Azubuke has a high ankle sprain, which is not good. And so Kansas has won all these close games. They're the number one team in the country. They're very talented, and they have basically played, most people think, nowhere close to their potential. The question is, maybe people overestimated their potential, and maybe they're just very lucky right now. Um, but they win a lot of close games, and they've always done that under Bill Self. So I really will give them some credit for that. But at the same time, they're going to have a bit of a problem adjusting to Asabuke because they were going last year. They were going small ball, playing four out, shooting a lot of threes. This year, they really don't have a lot of shooters, especially when they're disciplining the Gerald Vick for unknown um, miss, missteps. And they were just trying; they were just getting used to playing more inside, and then they lose Azubuke. So now they're going to be playing uh, a more guard-heavy lineup. Marcus Garrett's going to get a lot more minutes. He played 31 minutes on Saturday. Uh, Charlie Moore is going to get more time off the bench. And so they're really going to have to go smaller, and they may not have the shooters that they did last year when they had Devontae Graham and Svi Mihaluk and those guys. So that's the question for how Kansas adjusts on the fly. And Azubuke, you may say, oh, this guy just fouls out all the time. Uh, he doesn't play that much. Well, he doesn't play that much, but when he does play, he's so involved that he's so important. I looked at his O rating. This is before the game on Saturday. He's He plays... Uh, 42.7% of the minutes, That was this is now, and he is involved in 29.1% of the possessions. So that's pretty crazy. Um, just to give you an idea, Diedrich Lawson plays 78.8% of the minutes, and he's involved in 30.4% of the possessions. So Azubuke is very important to this team. He, he will probably not be back before the new year, so Kansas will just have to figure it out. They have a tough game against Villanova at home. Then they also have a trip to Arizona State uh, before Christmas, so it's going to be a little interesting to see how Kansas adjust to this but they're very talented and well coached yeah i would want to correct myself i, I thought it was new mexico they played new mexico state that's my bad right. Mexico State, coached by chris jans um who actually i think is quite a good coach he um he formerly was the head coach at uh, bowling green he was an assistant under greg marshall at wichita state on two different occasions um 
but New Mexico State had just beaten New Mexico by 35 points. Um, New Mexico State had also beaten uh, Washington State and won at UTEP. Um, and uh, actually, they've already beaten New Mexico twice this year, once by four and once by 35. Hey, sure why are they playing New Mexico twi- twice in two and a half weeks? I want to talk about New Mexico, though, because their coach, um, Paul Weir, who's a former uh, Steve Alford assistant, he's had a different starting lineup every game this year, and he, he apparently does it based on who has the most deflections in practice between the games. And um, I wonder if that is going to be running thin soon because he's lost his last two games by a combined 60 points to New Mexico State and St. Mary's. Um, you have any thoughts on starting 12, uh, seven different starting lineups with 11 different players in, in your first seven games? Sounds like a weird thing to do. Um, I don't know. Is is deflections really the best way to determine who signs up, who gets in your starting lineup? I don't know. Amazingly, they have minutes continuity. They're only 256 in the country, so not sure what's going on there. That's from last year, though. I think that takes the comparison. Oh, okay. Oh, bench minutes. They're they're oh they're yeah they do get a lot of bench minutes. 40% of bench minutes. Yeah. Uh, which is 20th in the country. Um, forget what I said. Um, yeah, I wouldn't do that. But whatever, he's experimenting. <laughs> he is over 500, so that's cool. Yeah, but I don't think I would if, do that. If you want a slightly more um, sophisticated way to use practice to reward players with minutes, you should, again, listen to the Kyle Smith podcast with um, uh, Jordan Sperber, who, interestingly, was a former um, uh, operations guy for Chris Jans in New Mexico State. Um, and he talks to him about all of the kind of analytics they use from practice that is more just deflections and it has to do with uh how many times you get two feet in the paint on a drive and how many you know defensive rebounds are worth x and et cetera, et cetera. anyway um we talked about yudoka's high ankle sprain anything else you want to talk about from the last week before we move on to some uh some storylines and news and notes that uh from the last week i uh, know i think i'm good i'm just gonna hope for a quick healing for uh doke as they call him yeah and aj reese as well speedy healing to yes. the freshman from Brimmer in May. Um, Vernon Carey, he's a really good prospect. He's going to Duke. Uh, I have nothing else to say on that. I think he was looking at Michigan State as well. Uh, I don't have much. I mean, he's probably going to be a top draft pick in two years. Um, that's what Duke does now. And there was some thought that when Jeff Capo left, they might that might slow down a little bit. But at least with uh, Vernon Carey, it hasn't. Um, yeah. Big East expansion. So this is an interesting topic. Uh, Val Ackerman is the president or the commissioner of the Big East discuss the possibility of going to 11 teams and also how they continue to do the double round robin which is a which is a fan favorite in the big east by having um still moving to 20 game schedule which we're seeing in the big 10 and also the acc um what do you think on do you think the big east should expand and do you think you know obviously uconn is the first team people mention um do you have any thoughts on the on a potential big east expansion so how would UConn work with their football team that is still around, apparently? Um, they would just terrible. play... Yeah. yeah, would they play another conference in football? They'd stay in the American for football? I suspect they would be forced to leave the American, and they would probably join the uh, MAC. Like the, like UMass is in the MAC for football and in the A-10 for basketball. I, I would suspect that would be what would happen. Um, or maybe UMass went back to independent. I'm pretty sure they're in the MAC, but I, they were definitely were in the MAC at one point. Um, yeah, I, I let's assume that UConn has moved to the MAC in football and is in the Big East and other sports. I like the idea of going to having having UConn in the Big East again. This is someone to definitely root against. Um, I think that it would help the games they play at the Garden in the um, Big East tournament, which they've also extended their deal, I believe. That's cool. Great for them. 
Um, so I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I just think UConn, I mean, it's just so silly what happened with them. They just totally, of all the teams in the musical chairs at the conference shuffles, they're the ones that had the worst, they played at the worst hand possibly, they did it for football, which stinks and no one cares about, and now they have this mess. So UConn, but UConn would not be like a travel problem for anybody. I think it would be a great team to add. you got to add the right teams, and I don't have a problem with going to 20 games to preserve the double round robin. Um, I think that would be fine. Yeah, I guess the neutral observer, UConn makes the most sense. Um, I personally just keep it the way it is right now, unless like the unless Madison Square Garden or Fox is pushing the Big East to expand. Um, I can't stand UConn, and I think that uh, you know Providence's success in recruiting is not just because UConn's not in a major conference, but it certainly hasn't hurt um, you know the Friars recruiting. Although they really have been recruiting more out of the Mid Atlantic. Um, and even the South than uh, out of the New England. Although David Duke and A.J. Reeves uh, from Providence and from Boston are two exceptions to that. They're top two freshmen from this year. Makai Ashton Lankford picked uh, Providence after decommitting from Duke as well. Sorry, from UConn as well. Um, you know, other teams that are brought up sometimes, um, Gonzaga is sometimes brought up. Obviously, geographically, it's a very difficult fit. Um, sometimes they bring up Gonzaga and St. Mary's together, but St. Mary's doesn't really have the same infrastructure that the rest of the Big East teams have. Um, VCU is a team that's brought up sometimes, St. Mary's, Richmond, um, sometimes they bring up a potential second Philly school, like, like St. Joe's, um, any of those school, or Dayton comes up, any, any, and Dayton, Dayton always comes up, Dayton's, yeah, Dayton's a big close crowd. to Xavier, yeah, I don't any, know, any, I don't, is Richmond good enough to be in the Big East, like, I don't think so, Dayton is up and down. Like most years, look at these schools. They're gonna, they would be happy to be in the middle of the pack. Like a good year for Dayton, is in the middle of the pack in the Big East. So if they're gonna add a big fish, they should. If they're gonna add a school, it should really be a truly big fish that's gonna definitely help the league. If you had another team that's like a good year is gonna be in the middle of the league, I don't necessarily see the point of doing that. Do we? I mean, uh, yeah, just Dayton in the. They have a big arena that they usually do pretty well in, but they haven't been that successful recently. Um, as far as you know, like being in a threat to go make a run in the NCAA tournament. So, yeah, there's yeah, obviously a market double up. When, yeah. You know, Villanova wouldn't really want St. Joe's, and, and Georgetown might not want VCU or Richmond. I feel like VCU might be a decent fit. St. Louis is a decent fit, but they've been so inconsistent. It's a major city. Uh, Connecticut probably is the best fit, except for football, and except for the fact that I can't stand them. Um, but I think <laughs> if, you, if you look at it like Jay Jaffe looks at Jaws for looking at Hall of Fame um, fit, like who should be in the Hall of Fame, and by the way, Harold Baines probably shouldn't, but we'll move on from that. Yeah. Um, but what he looks at is basically he has a, a way of rating each player. He takes their peak and he averages it with their total career. But um, the the standard for getting the Hall of Fame should be: is this player at least as good as an average Hall of Famer at that player's position? And I think that you can look at the same way with a potential newcomer to the Big East. Would this team be at least an average team in the Big East? Would it basically, or slightly above average? Would it improve the mean of the Big East? And I think that you couldn't make that case for anyone except for UConn and maybe VCU. And uh, even VCU is, I don't know what kind of like stability they might have moving forward 10, 15, 20 years. Of course, UConn in the last two or three years would not have been in the top half of the Big East, but if you look further out in each direction, it, it seems pretty clear that they would be, they would probably move the um, the average of the Big East higher. Yeah, I think that that's a good, that's a good measuring stick to have it. So you just got to be careful. You don't want to add a team that's going to just add very little and just cost you some of the, you know, the 
if you if you expanded and got rid of the double round robin, I think it would be bad if you added the two wrong teams. So keep yeah. it to one. And and yeah, I do I do totally see what you're saying about the Providence uh, battle with Connecticut, but at the same time, I think it might help the league. And you know, the, you know the old expression, a rising tide lifts all ships. So it would help Providence in some extent to have a higher profile league, but I think it might be a net negative for their recruiting in the short term. So that's always a balance that has to be struck. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if anything happens. It probably is multiple years out, but I mean, who knows? Maybe is this summer or one more really bad year for UConn football might might uh, lead the administration. I mean, it's hard. They put so much money into football. They built that stadium, Rentschler Stadium, I think, or something like that. Um, I, it's hard to imagine that they would kind of give up on football. But on the other hand, they could just say, well, we're going to move football, move football to the MAC, and we're going to move ourselves in basketball here, and then we'll wait for. Maybe next time the ACC or the Big Ten expands will consider us. Uh, I think that's it's a tough thing to do by moving your football down a, like a half a level to the MAC. But um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a, they're in a tough spot um, as as an athletic department, um, especially with the high expectations of the of the fans because of all the national championships. Tell us about uh, Mark Few, Tom, and uh, and his little uh, little quote that might have stirred some pots. Yeah, so Mark Few's a little upset because the NCAA is deliberately taking its time. Deliberately, and by I mean like slowly and thoughtfully, not intentionally. Yeah. You know, they're so, oh, deliberately. They're not deliberately being deliberate. Uh, well, I hope they are. But um, he said, "I'm disappointed." This is about. By the way, they're taking their time going through the FBI and the trial investigation, trying to assign, maybe possibly sign sanctions or whatever to the schools. He said, "I'm disappointed. I don't think this is something the NCAA needs to take their time on." There's teams out here competing for Final Fours and National Championships, and they don't need to stall this thing out. They need to make decisions and roll with it. I think that's on Emmert, referring to the NCAA president, Mark Emmert. And Emmert said last week that schools implicated by the FBI's investigation would not be disciplined until after the season, if there was any discipline. So, of course, this is the whole, it's a whole mess because... You know, they're using the stuff acquired by the FBI to determine whether schools like Kansas, I think Miami, Auburn, yeah, Creighton, LSU, Louisville, they're all named in this uh, case in some way or another. And so uh, Mark Few is trying to maybe, you know, cut a few, get a few of these teams sanctioned sooner rather than later to not affect uh, this, to affect the season, basically. So like players could be suspended or declared ineligible, I guess, and he thinks it's not fair. And so I guess my take on this is, He's probably right. They don't need this much time. Like they knew this, inf- this information is not new. That's there was some minor testimony that happened in the trial. That not uh, testimony that may have shed more minor light on this. But by the most part, the NCAA has known this for months. So I don't know what exactly is causing this delay. I think the NCAA has some interest in not uh, ruffling feathers during the year, just kind of try to do it after the year. But I think he's probably right that logistically, the NCAA could certainly figure this out now. And impose sanctions or penalties or suspensions or ineligibility declare, uh, declarations during the season. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the NCA is very hesitant to um, come down on anyone at this point because if they come down on players, if it, it feels like they're being, um, I mean, anything they do feels a little bit arbitrary. Um, secondly, um, anything they do could be seen as like oh this is just this is ridiculous a player should be able to make money anyway and then when it comes to teams it's in the middle of the season and it could kind of mess up um, seasons for teams i mean to me it's like whatever let's move on i'm, I'm fine i'm actually fine with the ncaa's approach let's wait till the off season um you know i guess in a sense gonzaga could really stand a benefit if zion williamson were ruled ineligible or something like that 
Um, I mean, he's been obviously involved in this situation at, at, a, at a level. Um, but And Kansas obviously been involved too, and those are two of the competitors with Gonzaga for Final Four and National Championships. Um, so, I, I mean... Yeah, I, I'm not that interested in this, in, um, in this. But uh, I guess the one wonders whether he's on the mark or whether he's a few paces off uh, <laughs> in his, uh, in his um, critique of the NCAA. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about Mark Few. Do you remember two years ago he made the Final Four, first Final Four? He's always this is a school that's always been close to the Final Four. Mark Few's been there forever. They make the tournament every year. They've had really good teams almost every year. And someone asked him like, is he no? Is it satisfying to like finally make the final four? And Mark Few reacted as a like an insulting question, and he said like, basically like, oh, I know my career is good. I don't need to make the final four. And basically, it was said that if he never made the final four, he'd be totally happy with his career. Which to me, while an admirable approach to take, I don't. I just have no. I just have a major problem believing that's actually the case. Like if he retired after losing the Elite Eight like three or four times, never made a final four, never got to go to the biggest weekend in the sport. Um, do we really think he'd be like, oh, that's fine. That wouldn't haunt him at night. That wouldn't, they wouldn't bother him. I think it would bother him a little. So I don't really trust him entirely. I just thought that was an out-of-line response to the question where he could have said, yes, it's a great achievement. I'm really proud of the kids. They're the ones who did it. But So the focus should be on them. But yes, it's a nice achievement for me as well. That's all I have to say. Yeah, it reminds me of when uh, I was at the Big East Media Day and I asked Jamie Dixon about a couple of his players that had been arrested during the offseason and what, whether there was going to be any kind of internal suspensions or anything like that. And he said... You know, falsely there was there were no arrests. And he was very upset with me for even bringing it up. So, anyway, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, there's not much going on the next couple of weeks in college basketball. There are some good games, but um, you know, because of finals and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I went through fan match this week, and you know what the best game on Thursday is? It, well, uh, according to our rundown, it's North Florida at Florida International. Yeah, that's the best game according to Ken Palm's fan match. So you know, I have to agree, and and here's why. There's only one Division One head basketball coach that is uh, following at Double Bonus Pod on Twitter. By the way, follow us at Double Bonus Pod. Email us doublebonuspod at gmail.com. And we have an email, by the way. We have an email that we're going to read in a second. So follow us at Double Bonus Pod. Email us doublebonus at gmail.com. Doublebonuspod at gmail.com. Go to uh, doublebonuspod.com to uh, find all our episodes and subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and on Google Play Music. But Jeremy Ballard, the FIU head coach, we talked about him earlier, number two adjusted tempo in the country, third shortest offensive possession lengths in the country, um, and despite his team making only 26% of their three-pointers, and that's despite taking the 60th most in the country, they're, uh, you know, they're 7-2. and two. And yes, three of those wins are against teams that aren't Division One, but you know, but in they, Columbia, they, they, they did beat is, Columbia. Just close. <laughs> <laughs> and they beat Florida Gulf Coast, which has won, has been good in the past. They don't look particularly good this year, but they, they gave 121 points to uh, Arkansas. Anyway, they're playing with Florida on Thursday night and their favorite to win 91, 89. You know, if you can find this game somehow on, I don't know where it would be ESPN, watch ESPN. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not on TV. Um, but I, I mean, I know what you're saying. It's not a good game. But it's uh, it the game itself isn't that bad in the sense that it's the but the point is that it's the worst game that it's the best game that night. The other games are BU at Dartmouth, Lamar at Cal State Bakerfield, 
Like these are the next best game. It's a total dead thing. I guess kids have to take exams, but it really messes up the schedule around this time of year. I mean, I think it only makes sense is to have each conference um, have different exam weeks so that they can spread them out and therefore we can have good games every night of the season. Yeah, let's get it together. But I mean, Harvard doesn't have exams until after the new, excuse me, the new year, which is ridiculous. Also, I mean, Harvard barely even keep get, has grades. They just give everyone A minuses, right? I mean, yeah. That's how it works up there. Once you get in, it's like, oh, yeah, old, yeah. the old right. boys network. Stay, hang around. It's like it's like the quote from the book Fever Pitch. Uh, his school and university is like passing was basically just like having graduating was like basically having a birthday, hang around, and it'll happen. It's the same thing at Harvard once you get in, of course. Yeah, Which by the way, I, read Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. That is a great good book. book. I've read it twice. Yeah. Yeah. I've read it uh, twice as well. Good book. Wow. Anyway. To, to combine, we've read it four times. Yeah. If you divide the number of times I've read it, but the number of times you've read it, it'd be one. Correct. Good yeah. math. Okay. Yeah. On to emails. And by emails, I mean email, singular. Um, subject line, email from Josh Lyman, which is a strange subject line. Usually you don't put who the email's from in the subject line because you there's a from <laughs> field in the email but it's a little suspicious and uh and i realize that who's who sent it it's a it's you know anyway um it's a fellow podcaster let's put it that way um but josh lyman you may or may not have known uh he was the deputy chief of staff under jeb bartlett in uh jeb bartlett administration and then he was the chief of staff under uh former congressman matthew santos on the west wing um, he was based on um, Rahm Emanuel, I think, which is, doesn't sound so good for Josh Lyman at this point. But um, Bradley Whitford played Josh Lyman. He's since gone on to play uh, to be in in um, Get Out, for instance. I think he's Joe Madden look alike. Yeah. Cameo. yeah, exactly. He does look like Joe Madden, especially now. Turtleneck, uh, white hair. Uh, anyway, so email from Josh Lyman. Gentlemen, love the show. Good start, good start. I haven't watched the single college basketball game this year. Well, these are our fans, uh, and may not catch one all season. But this is my wow. go-to college basketball show. I mean, just put that right on iTunes right there. Yeah. It's the college basketball podcast people who don't watch college basketball. That's what it is. We, we paint a picture. You don't even need yeah. to watch the games. Some people even question whether we watch the games. A couple of questions. <laughs> um, one, since this show is an homage to Bill Raftery, I feel like we've had a little bit too little Bill Raftery in the show. I mean, we need to step it up. And it's a great opportunity from Josh Lyman in bringing this in. Yeah. Can you please rank your favorite Rafteryisms? To be eligible, the saying has to have occurred frequently, so send it in Jerome and the like can't be included. Here's mine. Number four, I want, I want your comment on each one. Number four, Nickel Dimer. So, oh, they're all great, and this one is great too. It refers to a ticky tack yeah. foul. It's a good yeah. one. He just he he usually um, mentions his passing like oh it's the he gets called for the nickel dimer to the hand check. So yeah. That's yeah. Good. N- number three, uh, it would be everyone but Syracuse goes Miniman. I like that one. Uh, my favorite though is when he does a Syracuse game or a game that plays zone. He's like oh they go a two three zone with Miniman principles. That's a good twist because he knows it's <laughs> this thing. I also like how he. Most times the play-by-play guy will say the color guy's name to bring him in, but he'll always be like, you know, Iron Eagle, the Syracuse Orangemen go 2-3 zone with man-to-man principles. But he always mentions the play-by-play guy, which is a nice touch. So, yeah, that's, that's a Bird. good one. Bird. Uh, <laughs> you got to sleep um, fast. <laughs> it was so confusing once. There was a Big Ten game where uh, Bill Raptor was doing it, and I thought he was saying Vern, like Vern Lundquist. But I was like, that's not Vern Lundquist, but he was saying Bird for like I and Eagle, because an Eagle's a bird. Um, yeah. Number two, of course, is Onions. 
Yeah, he has, and there's some variations on onions, which is nice. I mean, it's a little inappropriate, but uh, he sometimes has sautéed or double order. So I think that's good how he plays off that to go from an obvious double entendre to uh, bowing back to the original meaning of the word onion. So I think that's nice. I, f- I feel like Levance Fields, um, one of my players' f- favorite formerly arrested Pittsburgh players that I might have asked Jim <laughs> Dixon about. Uh, he, uh, he he used to do like the Sam Cassell kind of large, um, you know, extremities uh, dance. Um, and, you know, I feel like he was probably inspired by all the times Bill Rafferty called his Big East games and, and shot out onions. But he had, he had some onions. He remember he beat Duke with a big shot at Madison Square Garden and beat Xavier with a, with a run um, when, the year that they went to the Elite Eight and lost to Villanova. Finally, number one is lingerie on the deck. What do you think of that one, and which is your favorite of those four? Of those four, so I have some other submissions. Laundry okay. on the Deck is not my favorite. Definitely not number one. I like it. It's funny, but I don't like it. I have some other submissions. One, get the puppies organized. It's yeah. great when he talks about a th- spot up three. Always awesome. Um, he also talks about the how about the ticker on this guy, or the yeah, about the guy who has heart and the, makes a big play in the clutch situation. Love that one, too. Also, um, wait, I just had it now. I'm blanking. Oh, oh, the little guy. Sometimes he'll refer to a guard as the, the little, little guy, guy. Which, which I like just blurting out at some points. Even when I'm watching a football game, when I watched Darren Sproles play, I just scream out, the little guy! So it's great. So, <laughs> um, yeah, they're all great. Um, and I know we were excluded from saying send it in, Jerome, but he does say send it in. Like when a guy dunks the ball, he doesn't say the last name, but he does say send it in. So I think that's totally allowed um, to be said. Obviously, the send it in, Jerome, is the greatest call in Bill Raftery's Life, not because of the scented in Jerome, but because of the tagline where he's like, no need for technical foul, just inferior equipment and superior body strength. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> we like Bill Raftery. And, uh, we Mike know, Gorman uh, was doing that game with him, too. Mike Gorman, still yeah. the Celtics announcer. I was watching that game um, live and in, not in person, in, at home. I, uh, a six-year-old or five, I'm not sure if it was past my birthday, a so five or six-year-old Brendan was watching that game. Um, it was, it was Providence-Pittsburgh, and I remember... There was a really long delay. That's what I remember most about it. Like the backboard shattered, and my dad and I were watching. And it was kind of amazing, but I think it put Pittsburgh up by a you know a few. It was it was really early in the game. It was maybe like I want to say like twelve seven or fourteen seven, and then it was almost an hour delay. And I think I maybe didn't even say over the whole game because I had to go to bed because I was again five or six. But uh, yeah, Mike Gorman doing games then, still doing those games now. But after doing games then, still doing Biggie's games and other college basketball games now. Uh, it's something. It's continuity is nice in a world that's uh, ever changing. Yeah. So yeah, those are mine. Do you have any other ones that we didn't, that were not mentioned by Josh Lyman? Oh, I don't know. I I, I don't have any other ones. Um, I. Uh, I, I just there are people out there who get frustrated by Bill Raffer and don't like him and I just I just don't like those people I have to say who 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 doesn't like him I think he's very people, I, people, yeah uh, I, I think he's I think what's good about him also is that he um when he criticizes a player he's like it's not like it's it's like grandfatherly or fatherly advice like oh that's a bad decision they can't make that decision but it just doesn't sound as mean as when like Jay Billis criticizes a player or like a referee or something like that. I just know it sounds more gentle anyway. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's true. And I think the thing is that he does still evaluate and analyze. He's not just all shtick like Dick right, Vitale. Totally. Yeah. Um, and sure there might be times where, um, he gets too excited in certain ways that might d- distract slightly, but I think for the most part, he's like, he's right on, he's right on and he's fun 
And I've never not I've never been like this is taken away from my enjoyment of the game and almost always it enhances my enjoyment of the game. Like like Bill Walton, for instance. He's just kind of off the rocker sometimes and you're like, What is going on? And he's only a sideshow and he's only good when the game is not really in, at issue or it's not your team. But Bill Rafter he can do both. He can be entertaining when the game is close and making good incisive remarks and then he can be entertaining when it's not really that interesting or when there's a, a lull in the action and talking about, you know, short arms not picking up the check or, you know, various <laughs> nighttime establishments that people may or may not have pervaded. Um, is, this a, is, this a, is this a hangover performance by uh, the Virginia Cavaliers? Why, why are you looking at me, Bird, when you say hangover? <laughs> <laughs> Things of that nature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bill Raftery, still the man. Okay. And always enjoys the game. You can tell he always enjoys the game when he's calling the game, which is not something you can say about any color analysts across the board. So that's really important. So number two on this, there are like five parts to this. This is really a high quality first email, a high standard to me. Yeah. Not everyone has to be, meet this standard. Number two. Yeah, send in a couple yeah. couple lines. That's it. You don't have to send in five bullet points. Yeah, so number two, we're actually, I'm going to read it, but we're going to come back to it. Because I feel like it deserves like its own segment of a, you know, a major segment in a podcast. Um, the University of Arizona has been called Point Guard U, and I know that this sender, Josh Lyman, um, or the person who pretends to be Josh Lyman, was a big Arizona fan growing up. Um, with a roster of Steve Kerr, Damon Stoudemire, Mike Bibby, Jason Terry, and Jason Gardner, um, etc., you made the case that they deserve the title Point Guard U. If you were going to assign U's for the other four positions, which teams would make the cut? So I would throw it out to you, audience. Send us in some emails with who you think are the U's for, well, one, if you think that Arizona shouldn't be point guard you, give us some contenders. And then who do you think should be shooting guard, small forward, power forward, and center you? Um, you know, I think center comes to mind automatically is Georgetown. But um, we'll think about it, and we're going to make it a, um, a longer segment on a future episode, and maybe we'll have some fan interaction on that one. Um, number three, Tom referred to the Final Four as, quote, the national semifinal. Do people actually call it that? It's called the Final Four, and the championship game is called the championship game. I thought that was self-explanatory, but perhaps Tom is one of those people who call the play-in games the first round. Tom, calling you out, Josh Lyman, not pulling punches like you're the majority leader in uh, in the House of Representatives. Well, now they're called the opening round. That's the Speaker of the House. The majority leader in the Senate. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's a majority leader in the House, but it's not uh, the, house, right? the most powerful person. Yeah, but there's also a House majority leader as well. Anyway, oh. um, back to more important things, such as basketball nomenclature. Um, I do colloquially refer to the playing games as the, the first four as the playing games, but they are now called the opening round, and the first round is now the round of 64 again. That was very confusing for a long time. Um and very annoying to me for reasons not get, worth getting into on this podcast, why they changed it. But anyway, um, I'm not one of those people who call it the first round. I never called it the first round. I think it's fine to call it the opening round to distinguish it from the first round proper. That's number one. Number two, I do think the Final Four includes all three games. I think it's an event that includes all three games. For reasons also not worth getting into this podcast, there's a Final Four record book, and that includes... If you set a Final Four record, you can play in any round of the tournament, any round of the Final Four, including the third place game when they used to Bill play. Bill Bradley with a, so I think I had think, a huge scoring game for Prince for Princeton, maybe against Michigan or something in the third place game. Yes. Yeah, so the Final Four is the whole event. The national semifinal is a specific game. Um, so yes, I, I stand by that one. I don't think that you can just say you made the you can if you say you made the Final Four. And you can say, and then won the title. You're talking about they won the final, the national title at the final four. 
So I, I'm going to stand by Klein at the national semifinal, not saying, oh, they played and they lost to North Carolina in the final four. I think that could be the championship game if you said that. Um, but those are my opinions on that. And I think I'm right. But so did Josh Lyman a lot of the time. Yeah. I remember when Josh Lyman gave away uh, three states because of the tobacco negotiations back in season, uh, I think that was season four. That was a, a big mistake, as Bruno Gianelli made clear to him, and uh, and Josh uh, definitely took it hard. Anyway, um, number four, this is one that I'm completely behind. I think the decision, this is, uh, this is Josh speaking, uh, the decision to standardize the court designs for all the tourney games was a massive mistake. It makes it way harder to track who is what who is what region, and it takes a bit of the character away from the opening rounds. I always remember Ty's Eddie's coast-to-coast layup to beat Mizzou it was in Boise State because of that blue and orange court. Why is it important that I remember that that moment took place in Boise? I'm not sure, but it does stand as living proof that Boise has a basketball program. You know, I think that... I couldn't agree more. I think that you know, you think about what Charlotte looked like. Um, Boise's obviously won, but even you know some of them had like a an NBA design or like NBA colors. Um, you know, the, like the they had the they kept the parquet in East Rutherford. I guess I kept it in Boston more recently too. They've made an effort to make a regions of certain colors. I believe the last few years, but uh, I do think that it was it's a big mistake. Um, that the NCAA tournament uh, has made in terms of branding to like, basically they've gone with kind of um, consistent branding over kind of evoking memories. And it just makes it hard to remember where things happen and, and where things were and what years they were. It all kinds of kind of blends together. Uh, I agree. I think it should be the court design of the program. I do think that the colors on the scores table, which they've done now, they have eight different colors for the eight different sites. At least, or at least four for the two days. I think that's helpful because it helps you kind of pay attention to like what the games are, but and where they are, and kind of recognize when you're flipping through all those games every every year, the first two days of the tournament, what's going on. But I agree, it should definitely go back to. Um, it would be great if it went back to. It never will, but it would be great if it went back to the college science. Now, here's a question for you: How well would you do if someone asked you like ten famous college basketball plays, which basket they were shooting at, left or right? Like the ties any play. Do you know whether it was right to left or left to right? Right to left, definitely right to left. That's correct. Okay, good. So you would do pretty well. Like Danny Ainge when he was at BYU and he made that great end to end run um, that against Notre Dame, I believe that was on the right. Uh, He shot that. Yeah. Um, What about Mario Chalmers? You remember that one? On the right. Yep. What about Hamilton for UConn? That. Oh. um, That was the right also. Yep. Good job. So you do pretty well to answer my question. Okay. Is that a so thing? Like knowing, remember what basket things are on? I think, I don't know. Sometimes I try to remember football plays or um, basketball plays, and I have to think for a second, wait, which way were they going? So anyway. Let me see if I can think of a couple for you. What about um, which way, this is the easy one, Chris Weber's timeout, which way were they, were they going? They were going right to left. Yeah. Uh, what about... Um, when Northern Iowa beat Kansas, which way was was Farouk Maness shooting the three-pointer in the second half? Good one, but right to left. I mean, left to right, left to right, okay. left to right. Uh, we'll end on a more pleasant one. What about um, uh, what is a pleasant moment that Kansas had in the NCAA tournament? It's hard to. I mean, they've had some. Okay, what what basket was Grayson Allen shooting at last year when his shot went around and around and out in the uh, the Kansas? They were going left to right. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, it is. They're going left to right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Good. The, the last point. See, I, 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 I know you're, you're annoyed about the Farouk Manesh, uh reference, but I, I brought it back there. Um, 
that that Kansas team was very unlikable. So, but it still was a very annoying game, and he still should not have shot the three. I'm sorry, I hate that. That what I hate is like, oh well, he made it, so it's fine. It's not. It was stupid. Which is what game are we talking about? Oh, the Farouk Manesh? The Farouk Manesh 3. Oh, okay. shot with like 25 seconds about in the Grayson shot Allen, clock. So yeah. I was confused. No, 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 no. Um, the last... Grayson Allen probably thinks that because Farouk Manesh shot, it was a good shot. Anyway, yeah. Well, I, 